0: Uh, So all that is probably a little bit fluff. Um, I am a local PA. I've been uh, in dermatology since I graduated uh, PA school uh, in 2002. I'm also a very proud papa, so you're going to see lots of pictures of my little girl. Uh, And she loves her lunch, so I hope you guys are enjoying your lunch as well. If you have any leftovers, she will take care of those for you. (laughs) Ah, There we go. All right. So this talk is basically entitled Pearls, things that I've learned over uh, my first decade. It's very informal. Uh, it's just kind of unique presentations of uncommon things that we see. Uh, I learned quite a bit as I saw these patients and as I did more research, so hopefully you'll take home a couple of good uh, educational pearls as we go through this. Uh, I am an avid golfer, so this is my, uh, my evolution of time. So uh, presentation number one, uh, some of these things don't belong here. So this is a 17-year-old young woman who comes in uh, complaining of non-healing sores on her left foot. They've been there for 18 months. Uh, They started after she stepped on a quote-unquote toothpick uh, at home. She had real thick shag carpeting, but she was never able to find the the, uh, toothpick or any residue of it. Um, She's been seen by her primary care physician several times. They've done several rounds of oral antibiotics. They did x-rays, which were normal. When he couldn't figure it out, he sent her to a surgeon uh, who did what surgeons do. He cut it, uh, did an exploratory surgery. He couldn't find anything that was going on and basically came to us for a third opinion. And you can see the nice little surgical scar here from where the surgeon did his work. So uh, she uh, reports fluctuations in size, pain, swelling, discharge at at either site, uh, and doesn't really have any significant medical history. So as I look at it, kind of thinking, okay, is this an abscess? Is it typical or uh, atypical organisms? Is this some kind of funky sarcoid? Is this a foreign body granuloma? Is this pyoderma? Is this fictitious? So I do what hopefully everybody else is gonna do. I take tissue. And like Sarah Walsh talked about yesterday, I take a lot of tissue. Uh, So I took two punch biopsies. Uh, Took one for H&E, took one for fresh tissue culture, sent those to the labs. Uh, And this is what my H&E biopsy showed. So basically you see this real uh, dense mixed infiltrate, plasma cells, neutrophils, eosinophils, um, histiocytes. But amongst this was this really unusual finding that the dermatopathologist called me about. And that's this guy right here, over here. And this is a sulfur granule. Uh, And that's just a nice close-up picture of it. So what's the significance of sulfur granules? It's usually seen in actinomycoses infections, uh, which are subacute to chronic bacterial infections. It's it's caused by a uh, filamentous, uh, gram-positive, non-acid-fast anaerobic uh, bacteria. It's usually uh, contiguous in its spread. It can have serprative or granulomatous uh, inflammation. You may have multiple abscesses. You may have sinus tract formations. Uh, and they can actually discharge some of the sulfur granules through those uh, through those sinus tracts. Uh, the most common presentation is uh, in cervical facial, like a lumpy jaw, but you can see abdominal and even and even uh, thoracic uh, presentations. <coughs> so I'm thinking, okay, great, unusual uh, presentation on H and E. About two weeks later, my fresh tissue cultures come back, confirm the presence of actinomycoses. I'm thinking, all right. So after a quick literature search after I talk to our local ID doc at the hospital, come up with this great treatment plan. We're gonna put you on some uh, antibiotics directed towards actinomycosis. I know why everything else didn't work. I know why surgery didn't work. Come on back in a month. We'll check you out. We'll see how you're doing. This is is all the things going through my head. She comes back for follow-up and she's worse. She doesn't have two spots. Now she's got a third. She looks like she's got a new fistula forming right through here. So we're back at square one. So start doing my exam, palpating for lymph nodes, don't feel any, start to palpate the lesion. And as I palpate the lesion, I can feel this little guy right here, this little firm nodule. Glove up, grab some forceps, grab some gauze, and remove her toothpick from her foot. You can see the nice little dot of pus right there. She called it a toothpick. I'm gonna call it a shish kebab skewer because it's four centimeters long. And as soon as I take it out, she starts wiggling her toes. Oh my gosh, I haven't been able to wiggle my toes for 18 months. guess I should have asked that at our first visit. Can you wiggle your toes? Uh, so now we know what's going on with her foot. The second presentation I want to show you is a 44-year-old guy who came into the office, complained of a cyst on his scalp for 15-plus years. And occasionally, it would get tender. Uh, he would traumatize it with shaving. He was starting to go bald to shaving more and more. Denies any previous surgeries. Now in hindsight, I should have said, no surgeries? What's this nice big scar right there? But didn't think about it until now. So uh, thinking, it's probably a cyst, maybe it's a little chronic folliculitis, maybe there's some scar tissue, maybe it's a chronic abscess, maybe it's a perigo nodule, no problem. Numb him up, sterile field, take nice sections around it, get around the whole lesion, start to cut underneath the lesion, and as I do, I can feel the scalpel blade just scrape against this hard piece of material, almost like bone formation, although I don't think I'm that deep. Finally work this thing out, work it out, work out the cyst, and you've got this little thing hanging on right there that I happen to cut through. So as I tease it out of his material, and I ask him, why is there a piece of glass in your scalp? He goes, oh yeah, you know, my first car, I rolled that and smashed my head into the sun gl- into the sunroof, Totally smashed it, happened about 15, 20 years ago. So that's what's been in his head for 15 to 20 years. So his pathology report, um, ruptured epidermal inclusion cyst, some granulomatous inflammation, uh, mixed inflammatory infiltrate again, and they did comment on the glass because I happened to put it in the specimen bottle for them. So these are foreign body uh, presentations, foreign body granulomas. The initial presentation can depend greatly uh, based on host immune response, the material that's present, the location, how long it's been there, is there infection present or not, and they can present with swelling, discharge, pain, tenderness, or it may be completely asymptomatic. You often will get ulcerations, you uh, often get fistula formations, Uh, and you can have secondary infection on top of these things. Uh, The most common ones being strep and staph, (coughs) excuse me staff and uh, 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 strep epididymis excuse me so what's the typical pathology or histology for 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 these folks there's usually a um, very intense granuloma disinflammation there may or may not be a true granuloma uh, formation and hopefully if you're lucky you're actually going to be able to visualize the foreign material and if you can visualize it it may or may not be polarizable and be uh, birefringent. And I'll show you a good picture of that here in a minute. So this is a nice classic presentation. Uh, you can see all this uh, uh, granuloma inflammation. You can see this nice granuloma forming around this foreign body. And this happens to be uh, plant material. This was a thorn uh, that Dr. Walsh provided for me. Uh, so you can see that nice dense granulomatous inflammation. Uh, another close-up of the foreign body. And it has actually a really pretty cell structure. And when they talk about uh, 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 birefringent on polarized light, that's what it looks like under polarized light. So just another neat picture. Glass has a very different look to it. Uh, If it's shattered glass, they can actually section through the tissue and see all this uh, glass particles here. If you suspect a foreign body, tell your pathologist, tell your dermatopathologist, and try and give them an idea of what it is, because if it's a dense material, they want to know about it. So as they section through this tissue, glass is really, really hard. Metal is hard, stone is hard, and it will actually damage the blades that they use to cut through the tissue, and it can damage your tissue specimen, it can damage their equipment. And a good picture of that is this piece of glass right here. As they section through the tissue, the blade actually caught the glass and ripped it through this tissue. So that's a nice tear artifact. And that's actually one of the findings that they'll see in foreign body reactions, especially in glass. And this is a close-up. You can see, again, some nice tear artifact through here. Okay. So if you're suspecting a foreign body, uh, imaging studies, x-rays, can be very, very effective uh, at figuring out what you have. So, for x rays, uh, you can identify metal, you can identify stone, you can identify glass if it's very dense. Uh, and even I can read this x ray, it's got a nice little arrow sign down here for me. I like that. Uh, so, that's a nice uh, galvanized steel fragment. If it's a less dense material, ultrasound is actually the imaging study of choice to go for, so a uh, glass that's not very dense, wood, plastic, fiberglass, and you can still see metal and you can still see stone in ultrasounds. You can also do MRIs, but they're very, very expensive to get done. So again, nice uh, arrow sign up here, uh, and you can see the, the wood and then the shadow cast by the ultrasound. So how do you treat foreign bodies? Uh, very simple. If you can find it and you can remove it, remove it. Uh, they'll thank you for it. Uh, you may need antibiotics, uh, and it's the antibiotics you select really should be based on what you can document. So if you can do a fresh tissue culture and document a true infection, that's what you want to use your antibiotics to treat. Uh, and keep in mind that if you cannot remove the foreign body, you may need to do long-term or even IV antibiotics to get that inflammation to calm down. So we're going to talk about presentation number two. Uh, Inside on the outside, shouldn't be there. So this is a 23-year-old African-American female uh, complaining of a slow-growing mass on her umbilicus, been going on for six months. She does report a recent uh, piercing in the area, which you can see the bottom of the piercing here. Um, She has some mild tenderness to palpation, but no drainage, no discharge, uh, no bloody material. No real strong family history or personal history of keloids, um, but in North County where I do most of my work, we have about a 50-50 split on African Americans and Caucasians. We see a lot of keloids. That was kind of the first thing that ran through my mind. Uh, To be thorough, I always kind of list out my differentials and try and expand it as much as I can. So thought about cysts, thought about sarcoid, thought about DFSPs. So no problem. We can take care of that for you. Numbed her up. Removed it in a beautiful saucerization, did a nice purse string to bring it back together put her belly button ring back in Put some Kenalog in the base set her up for one month follow-up thinking this thing's gonna heal up beautifully So I get to go on vacation the next week uh, And I very very vividly remember this I'm sitting in San Diego at coffee bean if you guys are from California You know what coffee bean is it's awesome my partner in crime Aaron the other P in the office calls me up and says uh, So we want to know if you're doing uh, something in room six, maybe you're seeing some patients doing some procedures that you're not telling the rest of us about, because I got one of your path report back, and it's consistent with endometriosis. That's about the look of my eyes right there when she told me that one. (laughs) So pathology is consistent, uh, multiple cysts lined with thin epithelium of a columnar type. There's um, a dense stroma, there's interstitial blood, all of which is consistent with um, endometriosis. And this is a nice close-up slide. You can see that columnar epithelium, you can see some of that in- interstitial blood. Another really good slide. Here's that columnar epithelium, interstitial blood. And this is actually the same... Um, Material that's saying what's shed when women have their periods as well. So you'll see that in the in, the in endometrial tissue. So, what is endometriosis? Uh, endometriosis is defined as the presence of extrauterine endometrial tissue. It affects up to 25% of all women and up to 45% of all women with pelvic pain, uh, but primary umbilical cutaneous endometriosis. Uh, affects less than 1% of those patients. So it's actually very, very uncommon. Uh, Women who've had surgery, whether it's laparoscopic or the traditional open abdominal or pelvic surgeries, the incidence is as high as 40%. Uh, And the literature suggests that most of these folks have not been diagnosed with endometriosis when you see them uh, for their cutaneous uh, presentation. So the more classic presentation is a slow-growing, tender, painful, firm, um, umbilical mass with cyclic episodes of bleeding that are usually in sync with, with her menstrual periods. Colors can vary from brown to purple to red to blue, and that's got a nice little uh, variation in color right there, uh, obviously along her nice abdominal surgical scar. Uh, most of these patients, upwards of 73% in some studies, do not have a known history of endometriosis. Uh, and like I said, common after the abdominal surgeries. So the treatment for these folks is surgical excision. You cut the you cut the sucker out. Uh, recurrence is uncommon and does require re-excision if you see it and uh, one author noted that if you see a recurrent endometrial tissue, you need to think about a malignant degeneration. Uh, They had talked about several cases of uh, recurring lesions that showed evidence of malignancy within them. Uh, You can also do medical management, uh, but management generally fails as you withdraw uh, treatment. Uh, The tissue tends to recur. Uh, You need to refer these folks to GYN for further evaluation, uh, which we happen to do, and her GYN said, okay, you have endometriosis? If you have a problem, let us know. So how was she doing in our practice? Um, she healed up great. Her belly button looks great. She got her belly button ring in. She's happy. She's got an innie when she used to have an outie. She's really happy. Didn't see her for a couple of years. She actually walked through the door about three weeks later, and my partner in crime saw her. Uh, and she decided to get two other things a little higher up, pierced, and was starting to have trouble with drainage, swelling, discharge. So it'll be interesting to see if um, her new piercings are going to give her problems and whether she develops any any, uh, issues there. See, I told you I was going to go quick. Uh, So presentation number three, uh, a king's diet that leads to a tender problem. Uh, This is a 64-year-old gentleman, complains of a growing, uh, minimally tender lesion on his left ear. It's been there for a good seven months. Um, He doesn't have any other surgeries in that area, and he's got the standard history that all of our uh, older white guys do. They've got hypertension, they've got diabetes, they have BPH, they have high cholesterol. He's had two or three skin cancers removed off his face. And within the same week, we actually saw this guy who comes in with two tender lesions on his ear that are growing rapidly he can't lay on this side he can't sleep on his right side which is unfortunate for him because that's his favorite side to sleep on Uh, and he's actually getting a little bit of milky uh, discharge that's coming out of the lesions on his ears and again he's got his high blood pressure his diabetes his renal insufficiencies that we'll see from time to time so these are the things going through my head is this some kind of a xanthoma is this a chondrodermatitis nodularis helicus is it a squame is it some keratoacanthoma Is it calcinosis cutis? What am I missing? So we do biopsies on both of these guys, and both biopsies actually show pretty much the exact same thing. So um, there's this nodular deposit of gray-pink amorphous material, needle-like clefts, uh, and the reason it looks this way and not the more traditional way, uh, this is gout. These are gouty tophi on the ear uh, without a diagnosis of gout. And the reason the material looks like this, why you don't see those um, negative birefringent crystals like you would in a needle aspiration, uh, and I apologize, this should say uh, formalin, not formaldehyde. When you drop the specimens in the formalin bottle, it actually dissolves the urate crystals and it presents as these uh, kind of uh, lumps of amorphous material. So that's actually the monosodium urate crystals, but it gets dissolved in the formaldehyde, or in the formalin jar. So another uh, close-up picture of uh, the same thing. So we all kind of know what gout is. It's a metabolic disease resulting in tissue deposition of uh, the urate crystals uh, from a supersaturated extracellular solution or extracellular fluids. You can get acute gouty arthritis. You can get uh, crystals in connective tissue to, in the connective tissue like TOFI. You can get urate urolithiasis. You can get gouty nephropathies. Uh, so a mixed, uh, mixed uh, combination of findings. It's usually present in middle-aged men, uh, eight times more likely in men than it is in women. And risk factors include alcohol, obesity, diuretic use, hypertension, renal insufficiency. And the biggest thing I actually learned about this is folks who have high nucleic acid turnover, uh, so uh, psoriasis being the big one that we see, cancers, they're also much more likely to have a hyperuricemia. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, We also see an an increased frequency in elderly women, especially those on diuretics. So, great picture of a nice gouty tophi here on this person's toe. So, it usually occurs 10 plus years into um, into their diagnosis. And actually, both the guys that we saw did not have a previous diagnosis of gout. Uh, you can see rapid onset and myeloproliferative disorders, uh, but it's the gouty tophi are actually only present in less than 10% of folks, and that incidence decreases because we're better at detecting gout, we're better at treating gout, folks are more compliant with their medications, they're easier to take, um, and the increase of gouty tophi will increase with the severity of their gout. There is a direct correlation. So the Gouty tophi usually occur occur in subcutaneous tissue, overlying joints and tendons. They can appear as firm pink nodules. They can be fusiform swellings. They can be erythematous. They can be ulcerated. They can be yellow. They can look any number of ways. Uh, They can erode into bone. They can erode into cartilage. They can erode into soft tissue. So there can be some very significant structural damage if they're not addressed appropriately. Uh, and they usually clear if you start them on their gout treatment. So six to 12 months down the road, had we not biopsied that guy's ear, they probably would have cleared up, but then we wouldn't have had cool pictures and cool slides, couldn't tell them they didn't, that they had gout. So presentation number four. Wow, I'm flying. Uh, I'm going to date myself. Who knows Huey Lewis in the news? All right. So I want a new drug, when that won't make me sick. I wanted to play the song. I couldn't find it on iTunes in time. All right, so this is a 54-year-old gentleman comes into the office uh, with blisters and a rash on his hands across his knuckles for the last 72 hours. They're painful and they're enlarging. Uh, They started on the hands, but now he's starting to see them on his face, on his ears. He's even starting to see them across the body. Denies any blood in his urine, denies any blood in the stools, no joint pains, uh, no arthralgias, history of high blood pressure, BPH, And honest to God, the only person I've ever seen in 12 years on their patient intake form that says, yeah, I do cocaine, no problem. (laughs) Only time I've ever seen it. But it's actually played a key role. So I'm thinking, drug reaction, is this sweets? Is this some kind of vasculitis? Heck, he does cocaine. Is it a septic emboli? Uh, And it was just a really unusual case. And you know how you get that, that feeling in the pit of your stomach where you know something's not right? So I went and grabbed my supervising physician who's absolutely awesome and amazing, grab her in, show her the, you know, we talk about the patient together, we talk about what it could be, and she gets this little glint in her eye uh, and basically say, hey, we're gonna take a couple of biopsies, uh, the girls will be in to get you numbed up in a minute, we'll be right back, We step out of the door. And she doesn't even stop to talk to me, she just runs right to her desk and starts rummaging in her bag and pulls out her JAD and flips open the JAD to an article. She is part of um, a, a group that meets every month to discuss the JAD and talk about articles. And she was the presenter for this month where they talked about cocaine laced with levamisole. And she talked about the presentation. And she said, you know what, it's probably not what it is, but let's run an Inca. let's run this, let's run that. Let's, let's check it out. Sure, no problem. So we drew some lab work uh, along with taking his, his uh, biopsies and he's leukopenic, so his white blood cell counts are low, he's anemic, uh, his RBCs, his H H are all on the low side. When we repeat his labs in a week, they're actually getting worse. So his white blood cell counts falling, he's becoming more anemic. His ANCA is positive, his urine cocaine is positive, and surprisingly, his urine Levamisole is positive as well. And the crazy thing about it is Levamisole is only detectable in urine for five to six hours. So this guy took a hit that morning before he came in to see us, to his benefit. So his pathology, uh, perivascular interstitial neutrophils uh, within the superficial and deep dermis, nuclear dust, fibrinoid necrosis, and they actually started to see an occlusive change to some of the vessels. So we're talking about an occlusive vasculitis. Uh, close up, you can actually see the inflammation centered right around the blood vessels here. Another smaller one up this way. Uh, so, what is levamisole? So, levamisole is a was a a drug that's associated with um, anti-ANCA uh, positive cutaneous vasculitis affecting the ears and the cheeks. Its widely reported location is on the ears, the face, the cheeks, and then also on the distal extremities. And histologically, it has the presentation of an occlusive vasculitis so historically lavamisole was a fda approved drug used as an immunomodulator as an adjuvant to chemotherapy as an anti-helmetic agent and it was pulled off the market by the fda in 2000 but it's still widely available in veterinary medicine they use it as a dewormer so it's readily available uh, to folks who want to use it and now they use it as an adulterant in cocaine and they think that it potentiates the effect of cocaine so it makes it last longer it also gives them more volume, so they can make more, ne- more money off what they sell. Uh, and upwards of 70% of all the cocaine in the U.S. is positive for Levamisole. Okay. So this is uh, a typical pathology slide from one of the articles, uh, showing some an occlusive um, uh, dense inflammatory, inflammatory infiltrate. You're starting to see some occlusion of the superficial peri- uh, blood vessels. So there are several case reports of this uh, making their way in the literature. Um, and it's a clinical, it's a very distinct clinical um, pathologic um, presentation. So the rediform purpura of the ears and the cheeks are the most common location, but don't forget about the fingers. Uh, ANCA positivity uh, with or without agranulocytosis. And then uh, a temporal association with uh, cocaine use. So Ching et al. in San Francisco had six documented cases of this although they did not test for Lavamisol, but they met all the other criteria. Uh, Poon et al. out in Rhode Island had uh, four cases, and then Zoo et al. had five cases in Alberta, Canada. Now, St. Louis, not wanting to be left behind, you know, we, are, we have a nice high incidence of syphilis. We have a nice high incidence of violent crime, although Detroit beat us out this year. We plan on taking that championship back. We didn't want to be left behind with levamisole and cocaine, so if you want the triad of fun, come on down to St. Louis. Right. So what are our treatments for these folks? Uh, treatment is largely supportive. Um, you rule out all the other causes of vasculitis, and uh, I mean, we did a pretty thorough workup for this guy. Um, you know, we looked for cryoglobulinemias and hepatitis C and hepatitis B, and all of these things were, were pretty well negative. Uh, you can do NSAIDs uh, if they're having any kind of joint arthralgias. The big thing is topical wound care. Um, You wanna make sure that you keep the wounds clean. You wanna prevent secondary infection because that's where they're really gonna run into their big problems. Um, You can do prednisone and colchicine if you need to for real uh, difficult to treat ulcers. You can do amputation if there's really recalcitrant ulcerations or if it's complicated by infection. Um, And then the thing to keep in mind is if they keep doing cocaine and they keep getting exposed to the labamisole, they are still gonna get the same lesions and who's to say when they will and when they won't get it. So how is our guy doing? Um, I actually saw him about two and a half to three weeks later. Uh, He said he was going to check himself into a treatment rehab program. Uh, He had been cocaine-free since his first visit, which was great. His lesions healed up great. He didn't have any secondary infection. He was looking great, and then he was lost to follow-up. So hopefully he's doing really well. I just don't have any good news to share with you guys about that. So what did we learn? Uh, I learned on this trip that kids will eat anything, including sand from the beach. You have to watch them like a hawk. Uh, She'll eat coral, she'll eat rocks, she'll find cigarette butts. She is the reason that beaches in Cure Sour Clean, because she found every piece of trash and put it in the trash can. (laughs) So some take-home pearls for you guys from this. Uh, Foreign bodies. Um, Presentation really depends on the host response and the material that's there. Location is also a very big determining factor for this. Pathology is typically granuloma disinflammation that may or may not have a true granuloma formation. Uh, And x-rays can be very effective at identifying dense material, but ultrasounds are actually ideal. You can see the less dense and the dense material. It's much more cost effective and you don't have to irradiate them. So ultrasounds are kind of where I lean to for first line. Endometriosis, uh, we need to consider this in our our women. with any kind of abdominal surgery uh, it's usually symptomatic and associated with in association with their menstrual cycles but you know, i can tell you that that's not always the case uh, and then we always need to think about malignant degeneration in a recurrent lesion so gout um, we need to think about this in our middle-aged men we need to think about this in our older women on diuretics uh, it's more common in our psoriatic patients and our other uh, cancer patients. So keep, always keep this in the back of your mind. And that's probably the biggest thing I learned about gout is I need to keep that in mind for my psoriatic patients. And then um Keep in mind, 70% of all cocaine in the US is laced with levamisole. People are having fun. Uh, and consider it in the presence of rediform purpura uh, on the ears, on the face, distal extremities, if, especially if it's ankyl positive and there's a temporal association with Cocaine use but that can be more difficult to tease out of them uh, so I need to say a couple of thanks uh, dr. Sarah Walsh who uh, presented to you all of us yesterday is the one who helped me put the slides together and basically explained to me what I'm looking at on the slide because I don't know about you I've never had histology it looks like pink and purple schmutz to me so she actually showed me what I'm looking for and really is uh, an excellent resource for us in st. Louis and then dr. Garrett who is my supervising physician who continually mentors me on a daily basis really make sure that I have the best education and uh, doesn't make me feel like a fool sometimes. Uh, the slides that I showed you today are a little different in order and content than what you have in your, um, on your jump drive. So if you do want the updated slide deck, uh, just email me and I'll send them over as a PDF or send them over via Dropbox for you. Okay? And I'm happy to ask any questions that you guys might have. I told you I'd get you done early. That way you've got some time to eat your food. And then these are just all my references.